from the studios of KPCW in Park City. It's This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about the environment and our relationships with it. I'm Chris Cherniak. And I'm Claire Wiley, and we scratch the surface of a coffee bean, a chili flake, or an apple seed today and find a bevy of strange chemicals, biological weapons, and a war raging unseen. Here, beetles, birds, bats, and butterflies must navigate a minefield of specialized chemicals and biotoxins, each designed to maim and kill. What an intro. And yet these chemicals evolved to repel marauding insects and animals have now become an integral part of our everyday lives. Some we use to greet our days, like caffeine, and titillate our tongues, like capsaicin. Others to bend our minds, say psilocybin, and take away our pains, opioids. In his new book, Most Delicious Poison, evolutionary biologist Noah Whiteman explores how we came to use and abuse these chemicals. Delving into the mysterious origins of plants and fungal toxins and their unique human history. That's all in the first part of the show. Super exciting. And then in the second half, we're going to speak with John Perlin, author, lecturer, and forest preservation consultant about his book, A Forest Journey, The Role of Trees in the Fate of Civilization. Now, in his latest edition of A Forest Journey, Perlin takes an even deeper dive into the history of humans' relationship to the forest. Environmental awareness and education, that's what this green earth is all about. Stay with us. Welcome to This Green Earth, a weekly talk show After about our relationships with and impacts upon the environment. I'm Chris Cherniak. And I'm Claire Wiley. And joining us in the first part of the show is Noah Whiteman. He is a professor of genetics, genomics, uh, evolution and development at Cal Berkeley. Yay. And uh, he's here to uh, talk about his new book, Most Delicious Poison. From Spices to Vices, the Story of Nature's Toxins. Dr. Whiteman, thank you so much for joining the, us this morning on This Green Earth. Uh, thank you so much for having me join you. It's, it's my pleasure to be beaming in from Berkeley. Go Bears. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I li used to live in Berkeley. Yeah, love the place. So let's start here. We always like to start with some definition of terms. And I thought the first one would be Give us a definition of what an evolutionary biologist is and what you do. Wow, that's a great question. <laughs> and maybe one of my favorite ones to answer. Good. <laughs> so my job is to try to understand uh, where we come from and sort of a capital W, we, that means all of life on earth, uh, how it arose and then diversified through time and eventually led to us and human consciousness. And my particular specialty is, is an attempt to understand how interactions between species have sort of driven that diversification process like a dynamo so that it resulted in probably, you know, the most diverse life forms uh, that we've ever known, which would include things like plants and the animals that eat them. Okay. So, yes. Yeah, so, so you just said plants and animals that eat them or... Um, animals that eat plants and, and plants that uh, defend themselves and uh, develop defenses in one way. And one defense mechanism, let's say just for plants, is to, I guess, uh, evolve over time by developing a certain chemistry within themselves to protect themselves. That's right. And they're incredibly good at this. And one reason is that they have this thing called the chloroplast, which enables them to sort of do a set of molecular uh, biochemical reactions in a particular way that sort of is, is I would say, more um, elaborate than our own ability to do that. Uh, but yet, again, some small animals even do the same thing. So mm -hmm. it's not completely restricted to plants. And of course, bacteria, mushrooms, they do it too. So a lot of organisms have the ability to create uh, complex chemicals that serve no other purpose for the organism except to defend themselves against enemies. Okay. And plants, because they can't move, <laughs> uh, they're sort of sitting ducks in a way, except really they're, it's worse than ducks because they can't swim, dive, or fly. They can't get away. So right. They can't get away. So, uh, and they're modular. So, you know, they're sitting there. They have these leaves, things like that. They have roots. They have fruits. They have flowers, depending on the, the species. And those are all really expensive tissues to kind of keep operating. 
and they're very vulnerable to attack. Okay, so for example, poison ivy, let's say. Did po- poison ivy didn't necessarily start out as poison ivy. Maybe it just started out as ivy, and then over time, I don't, I don't dare I give it, you know, the, the, the ivy some sense of consciousness. It develops, it somehow evolves to develop a chemical protection system. Yes, that's right. And so um, that's an example of a chemical urushiol that, that's on the, so a, sort of a wax that's on the surface of um, poison ivy, poison oak, and other members of the Anacardiaceae. Um, and uh, those plants, you know, we actually don't know the function of urushiol. That's an interesting example. So mm-hmm. we don't have all the answers. Um, but an exa- another example would be for uh, something like uh, mustard oils that are in wasabi. Um, you know, the, the wasabi plant makes those. And yes, the idea is that um, those chemicals actually can hurt the wasabi plant. So they store them in a way that is sort of like a protoxin. They're not quite toxic, but if the root, or, or in that case, the rhizome of the wasabi is damaged, say by a hungry beetle, um, there will form this toxin as a result of that protoxin being triggered, sort of like a, um, you know, sort of like a fuse being lit. And, um, if you think about that, it's very hard to find another argument for explaining why wasabi would make that chemical. And, you know, instead of converting that energy into seeds directly, right? Mm -hmm. So we've had to explain the appearance of all these diverse chemicals from things like the wasabi and mustard oil to the capsaicin you mentioned, to THC in marijuana, to caffeine in coffee beans. You know, why would it, why would these organisms make this stuff? Yeah. And yeah, the answer seems to be to largely to protect themselves from enemies. Okay, so so they can protect themselves, but I guess other pl- plants, and maybe even the same plants, can also develop a, a set of chemicals as an attractant. Well, what happens is, yes, you're right. So those same chemicals that initially serve as as a chemical shield, they work well for a while, but nature finds a way. Mm. <laughs> And specialized, uh, often insects, but other organisms as well, things like bacteria, fungi, other pathogens, they have all the ability to, to overcome those toxins. And that process has probably led to the most diverse uh, life forms that we know of, which are the insects. Um, and so most, around half of insects are herbivorous, which means they feed on living plants. And that is a hard thing to do. And so there are certain trade-offs in doing so. And it turns out that specialization on particular toxins um, is a thing. So this is the counter response in the insects that has led to their diversity at some level, we think. And for an an example of that is the monarch butterfly. You know, the the toxins in the milkweeds uh, protect those plants from most insects, but there are some insects that have pierced the shield. And the monarch is an example of that. And not only that, as you said, they use the toxins as attractants. So they turn the tables on the plants. And because you know each plant group is sort of making its own kind of toxin, the toxins turn out to reveal the identity of the plant. And so if you're a butterfly, you're like, hmm, that's my host plant <laughs> because it's making that chemical and I've evolved the ability to overcome it. It's the perfect signpost to use to find that plant. If say the chemical is emanating in the air as a volatile, or even if the butterfly lands in the leaf, they can taste with their feet so they can sense the chemicals that are on the leaf mm. just from touching it, which is kind of amazing. So there's, in some ways, I, I visualize this botanical arms race that gets set up, <laughs> that, that a plant yes. develops a protective uh, set of chemicals and then uh, an animal or so, an insect develops a way to combat that and, and so on and so forth. That's right. And that metaphor has been used to describe this ancient arms race between plants and insects. And we can trace that over deep time across the last 400 million years, which is about how old land plants and insects are. And from the very beginning, you can see damage from arthropods on the the earliest uh, land plants. And then in the plants, you can even see things like these oil body cells in mosses that contain these terpenoids that modern mosses also make and they use them to defend themselves against insects. So over time, as plants evolved, they continued to evolve these more and more elaborate uh, chemical arsenals 
And then the insects are sort of under a lot of evolutionary pressure to overcome that because once they do, there's sort of a buffet waiting for them, right? And so this idea of an arms race is exactly um, how some evolutionary biologists think of it. Others think of it more like trench warfare where, mm. you know, there is this um, continual arms race, but there's patchy, ephemeral tit for tats going on. And my guess is both are important in explaining all of this chemical diversity. So as you're going through this research, was there anything that caught you um, or surprised you, uh, especially maybe bringing in the human element of it? You know, because as I'm looking through your list and you're talking about attractants, for me, caffeine is an attractant, um, but you list it on here as being um, one of the poisonous ones. So I kind of want to walk through some of the human related um, instances with these plants. Yes, I guess. So one of the surprising things, you know, I sort of knew that caffeine uh, had been reported to be a, basically a natural insecticide, another one of these chemical defenses. Mm. And most people don't know this. Um, and if you think about it, what we're saying here is that the evidence suggests that the many different times that plants have evolved to make caffeine, so it's evolved a number of times independently across the tree of plant life, that uh, when it has, it seems to be used by the plants as a way to defend themselves against enemies on the one hand. There's also evidence though, that some plants like citrus uh, will put caffeine in nectar. Yes, citrus plants make caffeine and uh, they put it in the nectar. And the idea is that pollinating insects um, are being manipulated by that caffeine, just like, you know, we use it, right? My, I, I think anyway, that I'm a, a more interesting, lively person who can, has a better memory when I'm on caffeine. Mm -hmm. Well, the plants may be doing that to manipulate pollinators to be better pollinators, sometimes at the expense of the pollinator. So that's an example of caffeine sort of, you know, not just being used to defend plants, but, or a chemical being used to defend plants, but also being used to maybe even attract them, just like you said. So that's one surprising thing that the same chemical can sort of, you know, depending on the target or depending on what the plant is doing with it can cause, you know, different behaviors, repulsion or attraction. And the chemicals are sort of below the aversion threshold in the nectar, right? So they're toggling the, the plants or toggling the concentration just right so that when the bee comes, it doesn't just immediately refuse to continue eating. Whereas the concentration in the leaves is high enough to really stop most insects from eating the leaf. Does that make sense? So the plants are actually amazing in terms of how they've evolved the ability to tweak where, how, and when these chemicals are released. And then I would say the other surprising arc, just bringing it back to us, right. um, is that just as I mentioned, things like the monarch that have taken advantage of the chemicals, I didn't finish that thought, which is that the monarchs take the milkweed top caterpillars and put them in their bodies. And that protects them from birds during their migration event. And we use, humans use the same kinds of chemicals that are in foxglove plants to treat heart conditions, if that makes sense. So in a way, humans are doing very much a similar thing to what these animals have evolved to do innately. And of course, we're doing it by choice and cultural transmission. But that was the other surprising thing that I noticed. All of a sudden, we have these parallel arcs going on between the human world and the animal world. We're speaking with Noah Whiteman. He's professor of genetics, genomics, evolution, and development at Cal Berkeley and the author of the new book, Most Delicious Poison, From Spices to Vices, The Story of Nature's Toxins. So, Noah, we've been focusing on plants, but like you alluded to, uh, there are animals... Uh, that also have developed similar types of defense systems, chemical-based defense systems, let's say, uh, whether they're land-based or marine-based. Um, are there animals, though, I'm trying to, how do I phrase this? Is there a point where animals don't need to develop chemicals? Maybe they're big enough or they have, you know, large enough teeth and big, big enough claws that <laughs> the need for a chemical-based defense system is it as, as a higher priority? Is there a I way guess to tease that I out? I think you're right about that. You, yeah. you would be a good evolutionary biologist. Wow. That's, <laughs> well done, Chris. <laughs> that's, that's a hypothesis we could test. Okay. So I agree with you. I think the smaller, more vulnerable organisms, things like insects, toads, which make toxins in their, in their uh, parotid glands, you know, the small animals, skunks, for example, slow moving, right? Right. Um, 
they are produce aversive chemicals that they're they're able to do it right animals are able to do it um but then uh i would say in the in the sort of insect world a more common strategy is to co-opt them from these plants so they don't make them themselves but they would then borrow them right just like we do but you're right the larger organisms you know uh the larger mammals the larger reptiles you know, occasionally they'll be, and snakes have repugnatorial secretions that come out of their cloaca. Mm. If you've ever held a garter snake, people know this. Mm -hmm. It's a terrible smell. But that is not something that, you know, that that's sort of a last resort SOS thing, right? That those aren't actually filled with toxins. But um, yes, I think you're onto something there where, you know, in this case, size matters from the perspective of and and overall mobility, I would yeah, say. Yeah, I, 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 I agree. I was just thinking of speed, too. Speed, yes, and speed, size, right? Speed, yeah, and maybe flight, just being able yes. to get away. Yes. So maybe yes. birds don't have that need as much as other land-based animals to develop a, again a chemical-based defense system. But maybe there are yep. birds that do the same. Well, there are. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So there's, <laughs> so there's a bird called the patui that lives in uh, Papua New Guinea. And it's brightly colored, but both sexes are, which is, you know, a hint that something besides sexual selection and things like mate choice are driving that bright color pattern. And uh, it turns out that my colleagues at the California Academy of Sciences have discovered that the feathers of that bird, oh, and I should mention indigenous people in Papua New Guinea already knew this in general, but the specific chemicals in the feathers uh, were identified by colleagues at the California Academy of Sciences. And they discovered that some of the toxins in those feathers are the same kinds of toxins that are in some poison frogs. Um, and the toxins come from the diet. They come from probably ants, mites, and beetles that are making the precursors or the toxins themselves. And then the birds somehow move these through their body into the feathers. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. But, it's, but we think it's rare. We don't okay. we don't have a ton of evidence for this one way or the other, but I don't know of many other examples besides that. It's been speculated upon that some very colorful colorful birds, um, depending on the species, might be defended, but it's still very controversial. I'm I'm still trying to understand um, the evolutionary aspect of of this in the sense, like going back to say the plants that you say may develop started developing terpenoids. Um, is there a way to, to understand at what point the you know a plant doesn't consciously say you know what I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> try to design a maybe a terpenoid let's try this one you know and it fails and then let's try this type of terpenoid or you know this type of, the, I, I'm still trying to understand how plants even figure out that sure. this is a path to survival. Well, like most kinds of adaptations many of these defensive chemicals actually served a different function or mm. they continue to serve the more ancestral function in addition to their being used as a toxin by the plants by evolution. And for example, some chemicals probably evolve first as signaling molecules, so serving some housekeeping purpose, right? Communication within or between cells sort of make the body go. And then evolution sort of taps into them because maybe one individual made slightly more of that and put it in a particular tissue through some mutation. And in some cases, we know where and how these plants have evolved, the ability to synthesize things like caffeine, that pathway has been worked out. And you can imagine that there's a process of mutation that occurs of, you know, where there's sometimes existing genes get duplicated and those take on a new role mm. in an enzymatic pathway, say. And that might result in more of the substance being produced or a different version of it, because sometimes a single bond can turn a chemical from not toxic to toxic, right? right? So the tweaking that happens at the biochemical level, it's this trial and error kind of process that is built on the substrate of evolution that's occurred before. So, you know, brand new genes, I would say, that don't come from pre-existing genes through gene duplication, that's pretty rare in terms of how we understand the origin of this chemistry. So imagine these, these biochemical pathways that already exist and, you know, pushing them in one direction or another or a slightly new one is actually not that hard, um, especially if you're already making these kinds of chemicals like many of these organisms do, including us. Ah, yeah. Perfect segue, yes. Noah, because that was my next question, my curiosity about do humans and have humans over time developed 
their own sets of toxins? The, the, I'm sure the answer is yes. Uh, or chemical defense systems in some form. Well, what I would say to that is we're far more like the monarch, which doesn't make its own toxins, but has, has evolved in a remarkable capacity to pull them out of those milkweed plants and the prairies of, say, Minnesota, and you know, put them in the bodies of the caterpillars, right? And then the adults fly with those chemicals all the way down to Michoacan, Mexico, to overwinter, where they protect the butterflies from birds, most anyway. And we're much the same way, except we're culturally evolving the use of these chemicals over and over and over. Every human society that has ever existed, my guess is they're doing exactly what we're doing, maybe at a different level, but using chemicals from nature produced by other organisms to make their lives better and better in many different ways, right? But that's a knife's edge. And just like sometimes some monarchs are overcome by their host plants toxins, so are we, mm. right? And you know, my father who died of alcohol use disorder is an example of that. So the yeast that make that ethanol, they're not making it for us, although we've selected slightly more efficient varieties and things like that. But yeast were making ethanol before there were any people around, right? There were no people when the first yeast evolved to make ethanol. And so they're doing it for their own purposes. We're co-opting that. But in some ways, the yeast were making lots of ethanol to keep other microbes at bay and sort of have this private reserve of energy that they're able to use later. So it's kind of this amazing toxin. And you know, humans have sort of used it in the same way, right? We're putting um, alcohol in water to make alcohol more potable. We are using it um, to make uh, our psychological enemies <laughs> go away. Mm -hmm. But the problem is a little bit too much use and it becomes a toxin, right? Both physical and sort of psychological. Well, we could talk about this for a very, and very, I very have long a, time. We have a couple more questions yes. left, but this is, is very fascinating. Chris, you have uh, another? Yeah, I, just, a, just a couple more minutes. Um, let's talk about climate change. Is there any relationship between a warming planet and the work you do as an evolutionary biologist and what you might be seeing in, the, in ecosystems uh, uh, with respect to climate change? Yes, and you know it's interesting just in terms of surprises as I was writing the book, I didn't necessarily expect to end up in the book where I did. Um, and so the, the sort of end of the arc of the book, the last chapter, um, does talk about the fact that the vast majority um, say of anti-cancer drugs actually come from plants mm -hmm. and many of those come from the tropics. So the area between the Tropic of Cancer and the Tropic of Capricorn. And that is where the war of nature, as Darwin described it, borrowing a phrase from de Candolle, um, rages the strongest between species. And it's there that these chemicals, you know, many of them are forged in, the, in these ancient battles. And of course, climate change is affecting uh, these regions dramatically, as we've seen. I saw a picture yesterday of a tributary of the Amazon that is dried up, you know? Mm -hmm. And so what, what I'm seeing is that, uh, that we're in a period of rapid uh, change, and that is going to uh, result in rapid evolutionary change too, and that includes extinction. So my uh, colleagues and I are concerned, very concerned, um, that the rate of extinction, particularly uh, of things like insects, for example, right, um, is being hastened by climate change and by a warming planet, which is causing uh, droughts, uh, things like that. And that, of course, is ultimately going to affect the diversity of life, right? And that right. means also the diversity of chemicals. So as I say, whether there's a, you know, garden, uh, a poison garden that, that, our, that our descendants inherit that is as rich as the one that we've had is an, is an open question right now. And so, but the good thing is there's still a lot of time that we have to fix it. I shouldn't say a lot of time. There's a lot of potential in a short period of time to right. fix it, um, especially that part. So there, there, there are these sort of intertwined things, the habitat destruction, the conversion of natural lands to croplands, um, and climate change are sort of intertwined, right? The fates are now intertwined of those two things, and they're, they're sort of um, catalysts, one for the other. And that is something else that, that uh, I talk about in the book a little bit. And so my concern as someone who studies evolution 
is that uh, more and more and more of the world, right, is being uh, reduced, the natural world is being reduced in its footprint. And that, that is concerning. At the same time, indigenous and local peoples, um, they, their lands actually contain over half of the global biodiversity, um, probably about half of the carbon sequestration potential. So we need to think very hard about protecting indigenous people, their cultures, their lands for their own sake. Um, and if we do that, if we focus on that, we will do a lot in general for the world to better the world. So that is kind of where I ended up in the book, that the protection of indigenous people, culture, and their lands and their rights is critical for the survival of the planet hmm. as we know it. And the name of the book is Most Delicious Poison, From Spices to Vices, The Story of Nature's Toxins. Noah Whiteman is the author, and he's a professor of genetics, genomics, evolution, and development at Cal Berkeley. Noah, thank you so much for joining us this morning on This Green Earth. We have so many more questions. We'll have to have you back on the show, and thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. And we are going to cut to a quick break, and then we will be back with John Perlman, who wrote A Forest Journey, The Role of Trees and the Fate of Civilization. Stay with us right here on This Green Earth. And we're back here on This Green Earth. I'm Claire Wiley. And I'm Chris Cherniak. And in our second part of the show, we are going to be talking with John Perlin. Now, uh, John is an author, lecturer, and forest preservation consultant. And we are going to be talking about his book, A Forest Journey, The Role of Trees in the Fate of Civilization. And John, thank you so much for joining us. You're, wel <clears throat> You're welcome. Um, uh, I guess we don't have, uh, we just have, can you hear me? Yes, yes. we can totally yes, hear on. you. You are on the air. and uh, Okay, wonderful. Well, uh, thank you for uh, so much for having me. We're here excited to have you here. Yes. And you um, released a book called A Forest Journey, um, The Role of Trees and the Fate of Civilization. Now we're going to get to that. This is an, actually the first edition. We're going to get to that in just a moment. But I'm always curious about the origin of how someone goes down a path or where you began your research and exploration on this topic. So if you'll allow me to say what planted the seed for you to take this path of exploration in the study of humans and trees. Well, actually, it began uh, when I was 11 years old uh, when um, I uh, entered a uh, contest for uh, little um, oh, science kids uh, all over uh, USA and uh, asked the question, if a seed is so small, why is a tree so tall? Mm. And I won the national contest. And so that started me on the road uh, to trees because I was awarded uh, the first book of trees. And so that uh, you might say, as you say, planted the seed. And then um, I also in uh, eighth grade, I um, worked on um, chronologically uh, dating uh, uh, cores of uh, trees. And but that also planted another tree in my uh, brain. And while I was working on uh, I, well, uh, another book called uh, Golden Thread, 2,500 Years of Solar Architecture and Technology, hmm. I learned that everybody who turned to solar in antiquity, uh, they did it because they were running out of wood. And I said, oh my God, this is an amazing story that no one has ever told, that basically wood was the primary fuel of uh, all civilizations. In fact, was the primary fuel of the Stone Age. That's some of my new research and also was the primary building material of uh, civilization. And also in my new, my new research in the uh, Stone Age, which really should be called the Wood Age because it, without wood fires, um, no one would have left Africa. Yeah, so that's interesting. We're going to get into some of your new uh, revelations, I guess, but mm -hmm. this is not the first release of this book, A Forest Journey. When was the original edition published? Um, actually, the uh, original edition was published in 1989, um, got really um, honored by uh, Harvard University Press as one of its 100 great books, and uh, along with people like E.O. Wilson and Stephen Jay Gould, um, leading uh, American scientists, and 
actually, I went on various uh, public radio stations, uh, had asked me to uh, give uh, talks um, like we're doing today. Uh, and But you might say the tree continued to grow because the uh, next uh, 20, 30 years, I continued to um, research uh, because it was so incredible to discover uh, all the uh, speakers of the past uh, talking about how important trees are, how important um, the uh, trees are for the uh, building of, say, Rome or trees um, determining uh, the fate of, uh, um, say, Mesopotamia. <laughs> and the um, begins with the uh, Book of uh, Gilgamesh, where 5,000 years ago lays out the whole pattern of the sorry uh, fate of trees throughout the world. And um, so I continually um, accumulated, hoping, hoping I would get the opportunity to um, present a new story to a um, really um, great um, piece of research. And along came Patagonia in 2018, asking me to do just that. So, yeah, can you kind of talk us through the book and some of these relationships that civilization has to the forest um, and why it was so intriguing to you as you went down this path? Give us some examples of where this uh, really shows itself. Well, um, and, the, and this is all, uh, a lot of it's new, new material in the new book uh, is, for example, I learned in 1999 uh, that they discovered the first true tree called Archaeopteris. Uh, why was it a true tree? Hmm. Because it had roots, unlike other plants before it. It had a trunk, uh, unlike other uh, plants before it. It had branches, unlike other plant before us. And it also had leaves. And also, without the Archaeopteris, spreading across the entire world, uh, we wouldn't be here because what it did, it began the great carbon takedown and it also added tremendous amounts of uh, oxygen making the planet, uh, I should say the terrestrial areas of the planet, oh, a, a paradise for uh, living things like you and me. And so that was the beginning of um, my quest for, uh, you know, I want, oh, in fact, I actually went and dug fossils um, of Archaeopteris in Western Pennsylvania because I always like to get, do hands-on work. I, I do research in the library, of course, but I also go out like to the rainforest. I go out to, oh, you might say the uh, rock rainforest of Archaeopteris uh, to understand and uh, more physically feel the story and so that is uh and so and then in the um and permian extinction which was 251 years ago is a great lesson uh this is another new part of the book uh, that the trees uh, all died because of a great amount of too much carbon dioxide was the atmosphere the earth um oh uh heated up to a astronomical astronomical point and the consequence was all the trees died, so all the herbivores died, and consequently, all the carnivores died, right? Right. And um, this was called the Great Dying, and it took five million years to uh, recuperate. And so that, that, that is uh, some of the new research, but as you asked the question, well, the, there's multiple stories, for example, um, the um, you, you take you take uh, Great Britain. Uh, Great Britain uh, required what they called the wooden walls of England. That was the uh, ships of the line. You know these huge uh, triple-masted ships with 300 guns uh, to um, keep in the England's trade going, mm. uh, and that's what made England great. But it ran out of uh, timber uh, for masting because. When you shot the guns, you needed oh, um, equilibrium, mm -hmm. uh, 
you know, you didn't want your uh, boat to uh, sway into the ocean and everyone die. Mm -hmm. And so they went to America to find the great masting timber. Uh, so that's one example where um, without the masting timber of America in the 1600s and 1700s, uh, England would have uh, withered away as a minor uh, island. So that's one example. Another example is uh, the um, steel making in Africa. Africa, and, and this really goes against what you know is happening in our country today, like in Florida, you know, saying, oh, slavery is great because uh, the um, black people oh, learn trades and slaves. They actually had trades in Africa because they worked in iron and the first steel was made a thousand years, 2000 years uh, before the Europeans. Uh, but the problem was they needed fuel uh, to power to, you know, to smelt the metal right. And they ran out of uh, wood. And so the uh, civilization there uh, collapsed. Right. So, I, I never, I got, yeah, yeah, I was just going to say, I never thought of that truly appreciated the connection between trees and like you say steel and the iron age no trees no charcoal let's say no fuel no fuel you no got fire it. you you got it. actually actually now, now, i really appreciate you being such a good shill because uh, uh once again just like this stone age is misnamed it should be the beginning of the wood age uh, the metal ages are misnamed too mm. because as you said without charcoal which is a derivative of wood fuel of wood um you could have had no uh, metals because 95 percent of the rock that contains metal is ore and you need tremendous amounts of heat uh, to get that metal out of the rock so could you say that in some backwards way the 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 um the discovery of of coal and and oil and natural gas helped to at least uh, um, lessen the burden on trees and forests as as a fuel source, let's say? Uh, actually, uh, I wish I could say that, but I have a book, for example, on the uh, the destruction of the redwoods in, um, say, California, mm -hmm. or, uh, you, you know, um, that all occurred uh, as we entered the uh, fossil uh, fuel age. In fact, once again, wood served as the entree into the fossil fuel age because without uh, wood uh, uh, for props, you know, for the mines, yeah, uh, they could have never obtained the coal. Okay, and without and without wood, there's no railroad ties and no rail line. So it, oh, you, you you got in fact in fact what's interesting is in the UK uh, they um, ran their locomotives uh, at the beginning on coal, but in the USA uh, until after the Civil War. The entire uh, fleet of locomotives uh, ran on wood fuel. Nah, right. And so, and so, actually, um, it was the running out of wood uh, that actually uh, creates the, the um, need uh, for uh, fossil fuels for civilization to uh, continue. But, but what also uh, another new discovery in the book, and actually the book. Uh, I was told by the archaeologists, uh, spurred them on, was to discover that in great antiquity, it's called the Mycenaean um, Empire. I don't know if you, you know, you know the, the uh, uh, Homeric Greece. Mm -hmm. um, there were areas where they had huge pottery works and they were running out of wood. And uh, that's when the fossil fuel age actually began in uh, Mycenae and Turns and in Crete. Uh, they began uh, burning coal as a substitute uh, thousands of years ago. And we are speaking with John Perlin, who is an author, lecturer, and forest preservation consultant about his book. It's the new edition. It's called A Forest Journey, The Role of Trees and the Fate of Civilization. And, and you're talking us through um, uh, that everything kind of came back to uh, being in a, a forest situation for civilization, for people to survive and thrive. Uh, what are some areas maybe in the world where we've seen deforestation where it it used to be a forest, but would be surprising to hear that it was where people maybe ha have come and pillaged that and then moved forward. 
Indiana, the state of Indiana, used to be the uh, number one uh, lumber state of uh, the USA. Uh, you don't have to go very far for that. Or um, because uh, for um, research for another project, I had to be in upstate New York. Could you believe, it's hard to believe that places like Syracuse, like uh, Rochester, uh, used to be, you know, uh, as uh, forested as the Amazon with wolves, bears, Oh, um, and the Carolinas with, oh, for example, um, beautiful, beautiful plume birds. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it was it, the entire, they, they actually said that a squirrel could walk all the way from the Atlantic Ocean to the Mississippi without touching ground. Wow! So you don't so have to. Look, so you don't have to look. You don't have to look very far. Uh, in fact, I have a whole uh, section on um, the um, destruction of the woods of uh, the uh, entire Eastern America. But it was considered back then Western America, right? Right. Right. <laughs> you mm. know, and, and one of the uh, really fascinating things was uh, I have a photograph in the book of a, a lady uh, sitting uh, in Minnesota, sitting um, by a whole pile of huge logs. And a person looked at it, uh, who was from Minnesota, and they asked, where was this taken? You know, what exotic place was this taken, right? I said, in Minnesota. Mm. <laughs> so obviously humans are deeply connected to the forest, but where do you see this trajectory as, as we do seem to go into these places and uh, there's this deforestation. So where are we at now and what's the trajectory with our forests? Well, we have to change our viewpoint of that, uh, but it might be uh, genetically uh, implanted, I'm not sure. Uh, but we have to change our viewpoint that the trees approve. And this is actually a new part of the book too. All the services that tree provide for our very existential survival. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, uh, you know, everyone talks about carbon sequestration. This is very important that trees do. Uh, but also they don't realize that where it occurs, they think it occurs in the leaves, you know, with the photosynthesis. Mm -hmm but it actually mainly occurs in the uh, roots of where the uh, roots uh, change uh, what the, see the roots, what they do is they're sort of like they get the supplements for the trees, right? They're like going to the health food store mm -hmm. where they get, you know, where they get the, uh, for example, nitrogen, uh, they get the uh, potassium, uh, they get the um, oh, calcium, for example, and the, excess uh they bleed out into the earth and that mixes with rainwater which is called oh uh, carbonic acid which is a very diluted form of carbon dioxide mm -hmm. and they sequester the carbon in carbonates and that eventually flows into the ocean and forms limestone and locks the uh, carbon up for like a hundred million years so we we've been focusing on the role that trees have played uh, literally in, in uh, human, our human uh, evolution will, as, as a sources of fuel and, and uh, let's, you know, shelter and, and, f and say food and even maybe even clothing, et, et cetera. But trees, and we know as we live out here in Park City, trees play a role to our, or in our world culturally um, and, and even in spiritually too. You know, so can you talk a little bit about that that uh, th those roles and maybe the the um, I don't know the 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 risks that are that we're facing in losing trees in, uh, culturally and and spiritually. Well, uh, throughout the world, uh, trees have been the metaphor for life. Mm -hmm. uh, you take like the um, Old Testament, for example. Um, you know, in the Garden of Eden, uh, there's every type of tree, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, then uh, you take, for example, uh, and in Isaiah, uh, when the uh, Messiah comes, um, all the uh, desert becomes uh, forested. 
uh, than in, say, oh, Greek times, you had what were called the uh, sacred uh, groves, uh, where people, if they touched, a, you know, if they messed up a forest, uh, they would be severely punished. Mm. And there are many legends about how a person who, oh, in, 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 in the Greek world, ancient Greek world, if they cut down a um, old growth tree, uh, they get incredibly uh, uh, penalized. Um, like, uh, and in uh, German, um, uh, ancient German culture, where if you, uh, uh, like, uh, uh, take the bark off a tree, uh, they would uh, hammer uh, a, a nail into your umbilical cord and wind you around the tree. What? Uh, <laughs> okay. You know, I, well, I, you know, I don't advocate going that far, right, in protecting trees. But, you know, that's another example. In Rome, uh, Seneca talked about how if uh, you're, if you really want to feel God, uh, go out to an old growth forest mm. and stay there for several days. Mm. Um, so do you think, also, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Sorry? No, go ahead. I was just going to say, do you think that we're losing that reverence for trees? We, we've we lost that reverence. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, one of the sad things is in this virtual world we live in, uh, a lot of people, I guess, don't go outside that much, right? Right. Uh, but... Uh, if you want me to continue, I could continue or, um, yeah. you know, but, but uh, it's just, uh, and in uh, Norway, uh, they talk about this tree. If it's ever killed, uh, the world will just totally collapse. Uh, it's called, in Hebrew, it's called Eitz uh, Chaim, and in uh, um, English, it's called the Tree of Life. Right. Well, in a few more minutes we have, I want to turn towards... Uh, climate change and uh, in a warming world and and a world where uh, you know we continue to, to uh, deforest our our our, fo our, our forests etc um, do you see any evidence of trees to any types of trees that are actually doing their best to adapt or build resilience to uh, say a warming and drying world well actually uh, the trees are moving northward Right, uh, you, you know, uh, because of the changing uh, climate, but but also I would like to emphasize that trees not only uh, are great um, sequesters of carbon, uh, but they are also a um, great uh, protector from uh, pandemics. Uh, for example, the uh, bats, which uh, people believe responsible for the uh, COVID. Um, I actually, one of the impetuses for my research was landing on a uh, article called Bats, Deforestation, and Coronaviruses, mm -hmm. uh, written in, uh, published in 2018. You, you can understand the irony of that. And the main point was, once you cut down the trees, the bats come into um, the uh, public, into, into the uh, public sphere. And um, suddenly um, we get this, uh, what they call spillover. Uh, and also trees um, are responsible for at least 40% of the precipitation and also serve as a relay for rain to very distant spots, like 44% of the water from the Nile uh, comes from the uh, Congo uh, rainforest. So in a thirsty world, trees are so important too. But the carbon, um, you know, the, for example, the redwoods, uh, old growth, are the best. And so we have to somehow protect at least the uh, old uh, growth and form some kind of barrier uh, from uh, people entering uh, the, you know, establish, right, establish uh, the new, uh, the old idea of sacred woods because they're very sacred because they're our existential protector. You know, uh, just a, uh, another minute or so, you, you reminded me, John, of, um, of uh, one of my favorite birds who's now, now extinct, the ivory-billed woodpecker. And if you trace the, the, the story, the demise of that bird, it goes back to the fact that uh, its hardwood forest was cut down. 
uh, the Singer track in southeastern Arkansas, northwestern Louisiana or so, this, this beautiful hardwood forest. And that, that, that forest was, was cut down to provide, ostensibly, as I read, uh, railroad ties for the again the railroad industry the growing industry in the 1800s um, and so that's what wood all that wood went to and in, in of the many casualties uh, uh, biological casualties the ivory billed woodpecker was a victim of the railroad industry in a sense yeah, yeah I mean I mean uh, in fact the uh, the West could never have been and the West I mean anything uh, west of the um, Allegheny Mountains in the what we call the east right. um, could have never been settled uh, without the uh, trees because uh, actually I have this um, uh, courier and Ives image of the pioneer and everything in the um, pioneer's life in the image is uh, built of wood in fact, they even built their chimneys out of wood out west. Interesting. Well, the, the name of the book is The Role of Trees and the Fate of Civilization. The author is John Perlin. John, do you have a website people can go to to learn more well, about well, you? Well, actually, let me correct you. It's called A Forest, a forest Journey. Tree. Oh, the I'm role sorry. of wood and the fate of civilization. Yes, sorry. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> no, that's, that's cool. Okay. Yes, I do have a website called theforestjourney.com. And uh, it's a beautiful website. I didn't do it, so I'm not being, you know, uh, bragging <laughs> or anything. I had a great team who I couldn't believe what they produced. So, uh, you, and you can also go to Patagonia uh, and uh, Google and Patagonia and a forest journey also if you wish. And uh, so those are two uh, website possibilities. And... Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Thanks for being Thank on the show. And, and speaking of aesthetics, I also um, see that the book is very beautifully illustrated and there are a lot oh, of yeah, that's wonderful what, what, oh, images thank you. in there. Well, that, that, can I just say that? Real quick. That is, the, that is the most wonderful thing that Patagonia did is they created the most beautiful book I've ever seen. <laughs> It is absolutely stunning, and we appreciate you talking us through it. A Forest Journey, the Role of Wood and the Fate of Civilization. Thank you so much, John, Thanks, John. for joining us. Thank you so much for having me.